Objects in this rearview, the podcast where men discuss the paths our lives take and what we hope to see on the road ahead. I am your host, Travis Montez. In this episode, I interview writer, journalist, and criminal justice advocate Russell Morse. Russell's work has been featured in a number of publications, including Rolling Stone. He's one of the founders of Quest On Media, and he has a book of brilliant, poignant essays called Holy Name that is among my favorites. In this episode, we talk about writing, intimacy, creativity, manhood and masculinity, and we probably go on a lot of tangents because that is what Russell and I always do when we get together. I always have a good time talking to Russell, so I hope you enjoy our conversation conversation as much as I did. This is Objects in This Review. Hi, Russell. Welcome. I'm so excited to be a guest on this show, Travis. I feel like this was just... I'm so excited. You really inspired this. I'm happy to have you here. I'm honored. Up until now, it has felt like a rumor. You know, like, they're like, oh, they're making Dune 2, you know? And then... Finally, you see a poster for it. You're like, wow, they really are making Dune too." <laughs> it has been made. I think you're my like, sixth interview. I'm happy it's to happening. be here. Happy to be the sixth. Uh, that's what she said. And I'm really happy that you've gotten this thing off the ground. It's necessary. I, I, I love the concept. I love you. So I just want to start, like, tell us about, you and I sort of met in the oddest ways, but one of the things that we have in common is that we both work in the public defender arena of New York City. Tell our, get our audience what it is that you do. Um, I work at Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem, which is a community-based public defense office in Harlem. And we provide legal services for people who have criminal cases, uh, family court cases, immigration, housing for people who live uptown. And it's a great place. I've been there for 10 years. It's grown a lot. My role is on the criminal team. So I work Mm -hmm. mostly with people who have open criminal cases in Manhattan, and I'm a mitigation specialist. So my job is to get to know people, our clients, and interview them and talk to them about their lives, find out what's in their rear view or what should be in their rear view, basically. You know, put together a narrative for the court so that the people who are making decisions about this person's life, whether they should go to jail or not, et cetera, for how long is informed by this narrative, right? To give some context to whatever it is that brought this person into contact with the system. And then if there's something that the system can do for them, that would be better than putting them in jail, for instance, you know, drug treatment or mental health treatment or something like that. I like the job a lot. I particularly like it because, you know, our office really puts a lot of emphasis on us spending a lot of time with our clients and building relationships with them, which I think isn't always possible in public defense because it's such a chaotic environment. But I really appreciate, you know, that NDS makes a point of giving us the space to get to know our clients. And as a result, I get to have really meaningful relationships with, with a lot of people. And that makes the work really rewarding for me. What I like about what you do is I feel like it focuses on the possibility of interacting with the system being helpful to someone which I think people outside of this work think is the default. And actually it's, I think it's the rarity. Like 
someone coming out of the system better than when they went into it is not usual. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I honestly feel like now that I understand public defense work a lot more, when I first started this job, I thought, oh, like this will be a good way for me to learn the public defense world and see like I at the time I was like, maybe I'll go to law school and be a public defender. And in the process of the job, this job, I've realized, oh, this is the best role for me. Like this is, first of all, I'm only brought in when we have an opportunity to help somebody out. You know, sometimes like I hope I discouraged that idea. Well, if you I'll brought tell it to you me. what you said when I told you I wanted to go to law school. You were mortified. I think you were, you know, fiddling with the pearls around your neck and, you know, <laughs> fanning your face. You know, <laughs> my stars, I think you said <laughs> law school. Why ever would you want to do something like that? <laughs> I was a very gone with the wind. Yeah, that is yeah. exactly how I feel. And what you said, actually, I've used this in a cover letter. You should know this, that I quote you because I was at Columbia. You know, I never went to college. So I, I finally went back to school. I was in my 30s, you know, getting my bachelor's. And I was like, oh, I think I might want to go to law school. And, and, you know, you weren't like, that's a terrible idea. Get that dick out of your mouth, son. <laughs> what you said was really profound and very like patient and well phrased. And you were like, you know, yeah, like you could do whatever you wanted to. And you said, but you're a writer. You should honor that. And that really, really stuck with me. And that's what kind of led me to decide to major in creative writing. And then obviously eventually to get an MFA, I was like at the crossroads where I was like, oh, is this like a childish thing that I'm dooming myself to a life of poverty because I want to be a writer and that's a really hard life? Uh, or, you know, is it really meaningful to double down on your art and, and commit to your work? And you really pushed me in that direction. I, I should thank you more often for that, but you should know that that was a very important moment for me because for all we know, I would just be a burnt out cokehead public defender by now. If I had, if you had not <laughs> intervened. <laughs> one of yeah, many. At least I wouldn't one be alone. Many. Yeah. I just, I knew that, I guess we were working yeah. at the door at that time yeah. when we had that conversation. And I just knew you were an incredible writer. Like there was something, and I knew, like, knew your work is sort of like journalism, but there was something brilliant about it that reminded me of, I'm significantly older than you, also went to journalism school, but like what made me fall in love with journalism were those early articles from Vibe magazine where like those Tupac interviews while he was in prison um, I thought of like, those were, that's what got me interested in writing. And your writing reminded me of that. Thank you. Like that really like hungry, like giving this brilliant focus and voice to an insight and care to stories that I felt like were normally ignored by people with that level of talent. And that's wonderful to hear. I mean, that was, that was my objective, I think, for my whole early journalism career is that I really felt like there were a lot of important stories that I felt not only did I feel passionately about them, I was like, this has a lot of like real social relevance. And we don't hear about this stuff a lot. You know, it's writing a lot about incarcerated people and people living in poverty. And that's what was interesting to me, kind of maybe not like in a, a vice way where it's like, I'm parachuting into this community. But, you know, kind of like my work now, like really getting to know people in their lives, relating my own experience to it. 
you know, writing in the first person. So is writing about is writing about people with those experiences what got you interested in public defense work? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I was very blessed to work at New America Media. That was a really special place, a nonprofit wire service in San Francisco that brought together some of the most brilliant minds in journalism, along with kids who had just gotten out of juvenile hall and uh, high school students and, you know, like a really impressive spread of worldviews and, and life experiences to Together to have editorial meetings and decide how to cover important issues. And, you know, the stuff that I was writing about initially because it related to my experience was criminal justice and juvenile justice. And that led me to a lot of other beats that included unconventional things. Like, you know, when I first started working there, one of the first stories I, I wrote was about Columbine because that Columbine happened right when I started there. School shootings, that was a brand new phenomenon. And it really you know, Sandy Close, who was our executive there, really encouraged me to approach it with compassion. You know, like, what is it that's going on in young people's lives, especially, you know, I don't know, young white men, mostly boys, really white boys who are middle class and live in the suburbs. And what is that life and what's going on and where does this come from? Approach this with compassion. This is not a gun control story. This is about people, you know, and I wrote things about the police and how old were you? I was the same age as those kids, you know, like I was a, a senior in right. high school. So I was 18 years old and it made it that much easier to try and put myself, although my life experience was very different. I didn't grow up in the suburbs and blah, blah, blah. But you know, the, the piece that I wrote was about the idea that like, well, this is not unprecedented. It, it feels very shocking and sick and sad because we've never seen anything like this before, but this idea exists. You know, I just watched the movie Heathers the, uh, last night. In fact, that movie's completely Was this insane, your first time seeing it? No, no. I saw it when I was a kid and I mentioned it okay. in this write up and I was like, well, that's what Heathers is about. You know, like Heathers is about a school, a school shooting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Period. And then the guy tries to blow it up. So there's a lot of angst and what is teenage angst and where does that come from? And how is it manifesting now is in the, the world of 1999 when there was real intensely opulent wealth? You know, you remember at that time the stock market was, you know, breaking all these records. These, these were not impoverished kids who were living in uncertain times. It was probably the last most stable era we've had in this country. Honestly, it was just like, you know, Bubba was president. The economy was booming. You know, the Twin Towers were still standing, you know, and yet people were still really unhappy and had a lot of angst. And, you know, we looked at uh, media like Fight Club and, you know what I mean? Is there is there something here? What is this kind of like white male Video angst? Games. Yeah, all that kind of stuff without, you know, going to um, regular kind of scapegoating about like, oh, it's Marilyn Manson's fault, you know? So anyway, I mean, Sandy and all the editors there taught us to approach these stories with compassion and to talk about people and their experiences, not to use, you know, the, the journalism trick is like, you know, the first paragraph is like, you know, uh, Stacey Adams waited for seven hours outside of Rikers Island for her husband. Da, da, da. And then the rest of the story is like a bunch of numbers about how many people are, you know, we tried to invert that and say like, hey, here's this statistic that came out. What is the actual human side of that? And that was hugely influential. You know, a lot of the people who were there were former Black Panthers because we were in the Bay Area. So we had that political perspective. And, you know, the uh, our executive's husband was a, a professor, an expert in uh, East Asia. And you know what I mean? Like, where else would a kid in a group home who's 18 years old, like, get that kind of exposure to diverse worldviews like that? Like, I 
really every chance I get, I thank that organization. I thank Sandy, Kevin, everybody who taught us there because I really, when you talk about like what puts you on your path, that that really put me on my path. I feel very lucky to have found that place. I want to talk a little bit about like how you grew up. You grew up in the Bay Area. Yeah, I was born and raised in San Francisco. My mom was a nurse and she got an assignment to work for the public health system in San Francisco. She was also an army nurse. So I was born there soon after my family moved there and uh, born and raised for, for a long time. I was really proud of, I still am proud of being a native. You know, I just have lived outside of San Francisco long enough that my identity isn't fully wrapped up in it. Um, but yeah, I was born and raised in San Francisco, which was a obviously a very special and magical place. But the San Francisco that I grew up in was very different. You know, because I was growing up in the 80s and 90s and, you know, it was like the height of the crack epidemic and it's a lot of gangs and it was, you know, a very violent environment. And, you know, I went to, you know, one of the schools where they got metal detectors and all that kind of stuff, you know, like like the movies and huge gang fights at school and getting jumped. And, you know, it was like it was it was a strange time. And I. I, I will share like a quick story. I'm actually writing this in an essay right now, but very recently, my friend Josue, who you know, we went out for coffee in San Francisco in the Mission District where he's from, you know, where he grew up and got evicted and that neighborhood now, that's where Mark Zuckerberg lives, basically. You know what I mean? So it's kind of the front lines of gentr- tech gentrification in San Francisco. Then he ran into uh, his friend, Tongo, who's the same age and grew up, he's a, he's a really talented poet. Grew up in San Francisco at the same time, and we were sitting around telling stories. I'm like, oh, yeah, you remember? I was like, oh, I remember one time, you know, you know, when you were on the bus, you know, guys would pull the cables off the bus because it was an electric bus, so it couldn't move anymore, and they'd rush up on the bus and beat somebody's ass, take their shoes, run out of there. You know, I was like, I can't believe Mark Zuckerberg lives here. Oh, I remember one time, you know, I got jumped from my shoes, and I had to, you know, walk back home barefoot. And I was like, man, San Francisco sucks now. And then, you know, Tongo was like, man, people be nostalgic about some fucked up shit, you know? <laughs> and I was like, bro, how dare this place be Tongo, You're a genius. Yeah. Cause it's like, what are we romanticizing? I don't know. Our youth, like, yeah, it is a bummer that, you know, the, the San Francisco's changed in the way that it has, but it's also like, what are we actually romanticizing here? You know, but I, I love right. San Francisco. What are the parts that you miss? Uh, are you asking me that? What are the parts that I miss about San Francisco? Or Yeah. Um, I mean, now I guess I'm kind of not interested in this narrative of like, oh, it was like this before and now it's like this. And not because it's not a tragedy, but partly because I have enough distance to like not have to think about it all the time. And then also I kind of give myself some historical perspective where I'm like, bro, that's what San Francisco is. It's a gold rush town. You know what I mean? Like before 18, 1849, mm-hmm. it was just, you know, a handful of indigenous people and like two handfuls of, you know, conquistadors living there. And then they found gold and the whole world showed up and everything was a shitty nightmare. If you really read about the history of the gold rush, man, it was psychotic what they came in, you know, it's like hammering, nailing all they did, like the amount of like racial violence and instability was like 99% men. It was like, well, everybody's sharing one woman, this like sex trafficking, just every horrible thing you can imagine was happening in San Francisco, right? Uh, because of this huge influx and people were drawn and that's kind of that what built the San Francisco we have today. And we have a very romantic notion of that. You know, if you think about like uh, the Castro, you know, we always think about San Francisco as like a beacon and a haven for people in the LGBT community that goes back a long time, longer there than anywhere else. It's like a, you know, it's like the capital of the gay world. But, you know, the Castro district that we know now as a gay neighborhood, like 
you know, that was, uh, that was working class Irish and Italian people, you know? So like when you have like a huge influx of people, kind of like it wasn't, a, it wasn't a gold rush, but it was like a gay rush, you know, it's a big gay rush in the seventies. And there was a lot of displacement there, you know, that's kind of just the reality. Same thing with the hippies, you know, the hippies went to hate Ashbury. Uh, that was a black neighborhood. That was part of the Fillmore. You know, we love and, and celebrate the hippies. And I think all these people made great contributions, but it's a small town, seven by seven. They don't build any new shit. And every once in a while, something so freaky happens that the whole world wants to be there. And the, the last one was in 19, people get in 1999 out. was the dot-com boom. And then, you know, this kind of like second tech resurgence with Google and Facebook. So I don't know, man, I don't want to be a grouchy, you know, like a, 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 another mentor of mine talked about stuff like this. He's like, I don't want to be a captive of nostalgia. I like that idea. I don't want to be a captive of nostalgia. I'm sad that some of the things I loved about being there are have changed and are gone and will never be the same. But um, when I go back and visit, I still get a lot of the same kind of magic. It's in the air. You can't shake it. You know what I mean? I love sort of like how you describe San Francisco as like a, like the, a history of rushes. It's just sort of like the kind of, I love the way your literary mind works. Uh, you mentioned a little bit here of uh, being in a group home. We talk about all my all stories. Time. All uh, my stories for about you start with when I was in the group <laughs> home, comma. When I was in the group <laughs> home. Yeah. yeah. It's your like picture at Sicily. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's your picture at group home. It's, it's my, it's my rosebud. Yeah. How, how, much time did you spend in the group home system? In I was in the juvenile justice system for over three years. I went to a lot of different places. You know, when I first was in the system, I was in and out of juvenile hall, kind of doing the revolving door thing in juvenile hall, out on probation in juvenile hall. For what kind of stuff? Um, you know, drugs mostly and uh, stealing and like robbing houses and stealing cars you know some some pretty classic like you know in the 50s they called it like juvenile delinquent stuff you know i uh there was a lot of instability in my house when i was a kid and my mom moved out we're kind of right at that crucial like 13 year old period when you're kind of like most in need of or like the most vulnerable to like a dramatic negative shift and uh, she took with her kind of a lot of the stability in our house, just like, you know, food in the fridge and that kind of stuff. And it was just me and my dad. And he was he's a good man, you know, but also just like very depressed and not very like prepared to be a single dad. And I lived in a neighborhood where, you know, if you went outside to hang out, like there were a lot of cool guys who just sold drugs and, and did drugs and just hung out and we, we did whatever we wanted. It felt incredibly free and feral to be like part of a pack of wild <laughs> teenagers that just did whatever we wanted. We got wasted and we stole cars and we crashed cars and we got, we got jumped and we, we beat people up and uh, it felt, it was uh, exhilarating. Like I am a great lover of mischief. And I always have been. And that felt like, peak mischief you know it was like my whole life i was like ah teachers getting kicked out of school always being in trouble you know and then i was like oh like but out here i'm like a king because i'm i'm crazy i'll do i'll do whatever you know and i really got a lot out of that kind of like pro <laughs> i guess pro social is the wrong word but i got a lot out of that 
social group of people and it was just fun man you know we, we could take the bus to the beach and we would just like steal a giant jug of carlo rossi and get wasted and get into fights with the surfers and if we needed money we just rob a drug dealer and then sell their drugs and it was uh now here i am romanticizing it but there was a, a serious romantic element that no, you can like hear the love of the story <laughs> and like how you're, I'm like, I can't wait till you write about this. This sounds wonderful. Like yeah. it sounds like Huck Finn. I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. Tell me everything. And I, you know, I think for a long time, and this is something that you can identify with is just like, you know, we, we impose narratives on our lives because people are like, oh, what's the story? It's like, oh, well, yeah, I was locked up when I was a kid. Oh, I made a lot of bad decisions and, you know, it, it ended up okay, blah, 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 you know, and that's true. But like, I don't really get to talk that much you know i talked to you about it because we're friends and you appreciate this kind of stuff but like you know i at my job now i represent only kids you know and everybody at my job is like oh my god what's wrong with this kid this kid is crazy why did this kid do this and i was like bro that sounds it sounds fun you know what i mean like sure it's not great for people to do self-destructive right. things and then violence is bad and you know all that kind of stuff but like i really understand that impulse man if you are like a young person especially a, a boy honestly like there's a lot of weird boy energy and there aren't a lot of places for it to go if you don't like really come from a home with like a lot of support and good feedback and a school with like people who love and want to carry you you know so i get it and and it was a lot of fun a lot of that shit was fun i, I don't know how else to put it you know, so that's what led me to the system. Those were, you know, that's like a brief, well, not a brief. That is a summary of what was going on for t for teenage <laughs> Russell and why they finally were like, put him in a cage, get that dick out of your mouth, son. Put him in a cage. Yeah. <laughs> that's my catchphrase today, by the way. I hope that that is the title of an essay one day. It just <laughs> one of us has to use that. And is it in juvie that you discovered writing or were you writing before then? Um, that's a good question because I always think about myself as becoming a writer in juvenile hall for lots of reasons. Um, one is because of that program, the beat within that was part of new America media that came in and did writing workshops. So they really made me think about myself as a writer, capital W for the first time. But you know, even like as a teenager and as like a young adult, I remember as a kid writing short stories and stuff. I just, I had a lot of, again, you know, I watched a lot of movies. I read a lot of books. So I had a lot of romantic associations, like as a kid, just thinking about Jack London and all these kind of like adventurers and the writer's life and Dashiell Hammett, you know, San Francisco is such a literary city, you know, Mark, Tw Mark Twain famously right. spent a lot of time there. And, and, you know, it's like, oh, I saw Dead Poets Society when I was a kid. You know what I mean? Like, and instead of me being like, wow, this is a movie about like a bunch of like rich white kids, you know, instead I was like, wow, this looks amazing. What is, what is this planet? You know, anytime I, you know, like, and that was about being a young angsty writer, you know, and I thought that was beautiful. And that stuff really stuck with me. And I think, you know, a lot of credit is to like to my, both my parents really, who were readers and read to us when we were kids and, and encouraged us to have like a love. Of, of literature. I read a lot on my own. And um, I think I also was kind of a natural writer, which really kind of messed me up in school, to be honest, because I, I figured out like, oh, well, if, if you could just write, you kind of do it. You don't have to study, you don't have to do anything. You know what I mean? Like if you could just write an essay, like it's very easy to bail yourself out of, you know, uh, actually learning anything in school. So the kind of things that you had to learn you know, like times tables and stuff. I was just like, nah, bro, I can't, I can't be doing all that. That's a lot of work, you know, but like 
you know, if you're like, oh, we, you know, in seventh grade, oh, we need you to write up something about a current current event, you know, and just a 12 page presentation and essay, you know. And then like that morning, I would just like pull the newspaper out and be like, oh, damn, the Gulf War is pretty crazy. I wonder what's going on out there. And just like read a few pages and then kind of just write an essay about the Gulf War. But then, of course, that meant, again, when I came up against things, he actually, you know, I had to develop some work ethic for it was a lot harder. But I, I was... A, a natural writer and a, a natural storyteller, a natural kind of like I had a lot of uh, uh, self-propaganda, you know, and I was very into like telling my own stories and that works well on the page. So, you know, I, I love the idea and romanticized it, but it really didn't lock in for me, I think, until I got locked up and I got published. It was the first time I ever got published was in The Beat Within. And that was a really good feeling that really kind of gave me something I hadn't felt before where I felt like, mm, I don't know, like, legitimate in some ways like there was a thing that i would want to do and people would be interested in what i had to say which is a you know a, a big part of that program so i remember meeting you in brooklyn a lifetime ago and I, <laughs> whatever i met you in brooklyn a lifetime ago but it's sort of what i always have to remind myself of and i don't remember if it was happening at the time or if you just finished but you were like on a reality that's show. true that is true I was on a reality show about journalism. In fact, uh, it was called uh, I'm from Rolling Stone and they chose six contestants. I was one of six to go work at Rolling Stone magazine and they would film all of our exploits. Uh, my God. I mean, we could do a whole show just about that show, the show about the show. Yeah. Because that experience was so insane. I mean, the timing was perfect in a lot of ways because I was like at kind of this like apex of mania. You know what I mean? I've, I've, in my life, I have a lot. Yes, of, that is exactly how I would describe meeting you. Downs, you know, and I was also like kind of at a high point of like drinking and using drugs and stuff. And I was like, this is perfect for Rolling Stone. These guys are rock and roll renegades. You know, like I'm going to show up there and people are going to be like, this guy's amazing. And then I got to the Rolling Stone offices and, uh, you know, it was a magazine with uh, cubicles and people had deadlines and they were not as amused by me as I thought they would be. <laughs> so I kind of I kind of figured out early on. I mean, I don't know. Figured out is the wrong word to use. But I was like, I, I have to decide whether I'm going to be like a good employee of Rolling Stone magazine or a good subject for a reality show. And I chose to be a good subject mm. for a reality show, partly because it came and boy, it came more naturally. You played to I your did. strengths. I played to my strengths and also was like, again, you know, kind of like the school thing where it was like, oh, being a good journalist means like, you know, hitting deadlines and going to editorial meetings, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I, I do and have done. But it was way more fun to have a Rolling Stone press badge and just go to any concert or any city I wanted to and and have cameras following me and make a party out of it. It was an absolute adventure. I, I my God, I mean. I haven't thought about it in a long time. You know, uh, we had a reunion recently where we all kind of got together and told stories that that was fun. But I was really out there, man. I was I was too out there for for Rolling Stone, for certainly for Rolling Stone and at a certain point for MTV. Uh, and I won't say like it was my healthiest time. I was not taking care of myself necessarily. But as you said, uh, and thank you for that um, vindication, I guess I did make for a good subject of a reality show. Thank 100%. you. Good TV. Thank Excellent. You. Thank Excellent you. Thank TV. Thank you so much. I feel like one, one, of, one of the classic MTV, like of that era, one of the classic iconic experiences was, was that for me, was watching wow. you 
in that. That's high praise, man. MTV yeah. had a lot of good shows. I'm very happy to hear that. Yes, yeah. you were. Yeah, like Pup. Thank you. you. I always wanted to be put. Yeah, were some characters. I always wanted to be on the Mount Rushmore of like d- outrageous and dysfunctional reality show characters. What? Yeah. yeah well, in my Thank book. You. Thank you. And that's a compliment. I mean, I would say that with yeah, love. I know that you do because I know that you appreciate antics and mischief, as do I. It was all antics, all antics, all the time. So you've been working in public defender land for mm-hmm. ten years. You just got your MFA, yep. right, um, from Columbia. My MFA, I did undergrad at Columbia. My MFA was at NYU. Got it. So, like, what are you working on now and what's next for you? Um, are you like me who's like, I, you know, I've done my bid in public defense land and I love it, but, like, there has to be another life yeah, for me. Yeah, I do feel that way. I do. And and I do love my job, but I think part of the reason I went to uh, get the MFA and part of the reason I went to NYU is because very interestingly, when I went to, uh, you know, they invite you to sit in on classes when they're trying to convince you to go there, you know, like uh, recruitment. So they're like, oh, you should sit in on this class, this class with Saffron Fower, Jonathan Saffron Fower, right? You know, that guy, big time writer. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I, I read one of his books and really liked it. And I was like, Oh, cool. I'll sit in on his class. So I went and sat in on his class and he said a lot of funny things. One of the funny things that happened was that they were all teachers, you know, the people in that class, uh, part of the, the MFA program is that you teach. So part of the class, they would talk about like, Hey, what's going on as a teacher. And this one guy was like, Oh, I caught someone plagiarizing. It was so clearly not something they could have written and, you know, going on and on about how disgusted they were by this you know, plagiarizing undergrad or whatever, who I think was an international student and like, you know, uh, English was not their first language and, you know, and taking delight in having caught him. Oh, well, here's how I got him. You know, very, very schoolmarmy, you know, very headmastery. And I just listened, you know, and, uh, And then he said, oh, and then I brought it to the attention of, you know, the guy who's in charge of that teaching program. Like, this kid got fucked, basically, you know. And uh, Stafford Fowler kind of felt the same thing. He's like, hmm. And I had introduced myself so they knew that I was in the public defender world. They're like, well, uh, what's your perspective on this situation, Russell, as as someone who's involved in uh, public defense? And I I said, me, personally, I have a very strict no snitch policy. So I probably would have handled this a little bit differently. I think it is a good opportunity to talk to that student, but I don't necessarily know that he needs to be on blast for that and get in trouble. And Saffron Fowler was very tickled by this phrase, no snitch policy. Later on in the workshop, they were reading somebody's work and uh, it was like about this family, big family secret, you know, and someone had been abused and no one had told them for years and all this stuff, you know. And, and someone was critiquing us like, oh, I just don't understand why, like, someone would keep a secret like that. And Safford Forrest said, well, perhaps they had a very strict no snitch policy. <laughs> 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 so the other thing that he said that's pro- probably more important that isn't just a story about me saying something funny that I want to tell again uh, is that he's like, listen, like for you people who are considering going to NYU, like there are a lot of great MFAs, but NYU is like finishing school, man. This is a terminal degree. And this is for people who want to be professional writers. This is not an art school for outrageous experimentation. And you know what I mean? Like, this is a place where you're like, hey, how can I get a clip in The New Yorker? How can I get a book published? Everybody who's here is thinking about it in that way. If that appeals to you, if you want to be a professional writer, this is the program for you. And I like that. You know, I, I liked hearing that from him. It's it, similar to what you said. It made me feel like oh, this is attainable. 
you know, this is not just a hobby. This is something I could do professionally. And that really changed the way I thought about things. And as a result, I was very diligent, more diligent in my MFA than I've ever been in school in my whole life, probably because I was, you know, finally doing something that I was really passionate about. But I wrote a book while I was there. You know, I, I you're supposed to, you know, part of your application is like, you gotta have a book project and they're expecting you to be done because they want people to publish, you know? And so I, my final thesis was a draft of a memoir project, which is based a lot of the elements that you read in Holy Name, which was the kind of like the essays, the book of essays from a few years ago. A lot of those elements are there. I just kind of fleshed it out and learned a lot about what narrative is and a lot about kind of to, to the themes of your show a lot about how I think about trauma and how can I be honest about trauma as it relates to my current life without kind of just saying like bad things happened to me. Therefore I did bad things. Like I, it gave me a lot more nuance. I learned a lot. And so I have this um, thesis, which is, you know, needs work. Um, but I'm entering the phase now where I'm doing serious work on it. And the goal of course is to have a manuscript that I can share, you know, get an agent, talk to publishers. I feel really good about it. I generated a lot while I was there, which I didn't think I would do because I'm kind of a procrastinator, you know. Um, but I had a really great thesis advisor who was incredibly motivating and insightful and really like understood the project and encouraged me to do a lot of weird stuff. So, you know, be prepared for this memoir to have like time travel in it and aliens It'd still be nonfiction you know, and like long digressions about like domesticated animals and stuff. It's freaky and fun. And, and my thesis advisor encouraged me to do that. And I felt very, very freed by that. So that's, that's where my writing is uh, now is, is really fine tuning that. So would you say the structure of the program benefited you? Oh, definitely. In terms of generating, you know, like having, I'm a deadline person, I'm deadline oriented. Even if I miss the deadlines, I still need them. You know what I mean? I, having three, thank God, three submissions per semester, you know, which is each submission is like 30 pages on average. Some of them get are longer. That's a uh, hundred pages per semester, 400 pages total. You know, like I never would have generated that much on my own, to be honest. I just don't have the discipline for it yet. You know, that's something I'm working on, but I wrote way more than I would have otherwise. And I also like truly, truly learned like what was not good about my writing which like, that's what you're supposed to learn. You know, I, I went in there thinking like, oh man, I got a bunch of good shit. I'm going to rock this, you know? And then people were like, I don't know. You're not thinking very critically about this thing, you know, or like you're exposing something about your character here that you don't intend to. Um, and I was leaning too heavily on kind of the trauma plot, you know, and, and certain like storytelling cliches and was not being very honest about narrative. I was using the narrative kind of an imposed narrative on my life that, made sense that would help people make sense oh i was a kid and i got in a bunch of trouble and then i was locked up you know wow now i'm doing good you know and that's not really true to my experience or i think really anybody's experience and there's just a lot more nuance here where it's like you know if you read in, in holy name and i'm sure we, you'll ask some questions about this but you know there's like the first chapter is about my mom you know and my relationship with my mom and my mom's kind of like family history and why she was such an angry person and why she was an abusive person. And I tell this story about, you know, when I was very young and she was, you know, violent towards me. And that's a true story. And that is important in my life in some ways. But I realized like, why, why is it so important for me to tell that story? Do you know what I mean? Like part of it is like, like yeah. yeah, sure. I haven't like fully resolved everything uh, with my mom, but also like, am I just kind of said, that's not very, 
accurate, you know, because my mom, again, contained multitudes. I didn't write anything in there about how she read great expectations to me out loud when I was, you know, right. 10 years old or whatever. You know, I just wrote, oh, she had this horrible temper because she came from an alcoholic family. You know, it's like that's that's a basically a memoir trope. You know, like I'm just putting that in there because I know oh, people love alcoholic families, you know, but she's just a much richer person, just like all of us. And I'm a much richer person than just someone who got in trouble and got locked up. And I have I contain all kinds of contradictions and people noticed that. And they told me like, hey, man, like, yeah, it sounds like your mom was uh, abusive. You know, that, that's that's rough. You know, so what? You know, like <laughs> like <laughs> it, it was great to be in a nonfiction program because every single person there had insane levels of trauma. Do you know what I mean? There was like a Marine who was, who was right. a fucking Iraq vet. And then there was a woman whose like entire family died in a matter of a couple of years, you know? And then, I mean, just every single, the, the big, that was the joke about us. So it was very easy for us as all as like trauma people who are writing and thinking about our traumas to just tell each other, like, so what, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, your whole family died. That's fucked up. So what, like, where's, why is that a story? Why is that important? You know, how can you make that, resonant with other people where is the social relevance where is the kind of like you know human resonance where like somebody who didn't lose their whole family is gonna like feel you know the same kind of like what is loss all that kinds of stuff and that really helped me it got me away from a lot of cliches and improved my writing and i i, I really got a lot out of it people talk shit about mfas but i i had a, a great experience so in my own writing i found that like i mind my trauma and I wrote about my trauma in such a way that then I didn't leave enough room to write about my joy, which also sort of like reflected how I live. And so it's been really in sort of like the last couple of projects that I've like sort of began tackling how to celebrate that too in art. Yeah. So I'm really, I'm, th I'm thrilled that you have like a memoir coming because I think I find your writing incredibly honest. Who are like some of the people that you enjoy reading for that reason. Oh, um, yeah, I was talking to a friend today about that book, There, There, the 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 Tommy Orange book about that kid from Oakland. He's an indigenous mm -hmm. kid, Native American kid from Oakland. I I really appreciate I mean I read that book because of you. I, I love that. Yeah, book. we talked about it. We had it was a part of the Marja Call yep. Book Club. Um, so I always think yep. of that one. I also liked, um, you know, I read recently, what, what was it? We, we, the animals you're talking about, they made a movie mm -hmm. out of it. I, I'm, I really, I feel bad. I can't remember that person's name now, but that book really spoke to me in terms of kind of what you're saying. Like those kids had like a pretty messed up situation. There was a lot of abuse and a lot of neglect and whatever, and even like some tense and violent sibling relationships. But most of it was just about the absolute joy of being uh, like a young boy the chaos of being a young boy and right. fighting your brothers. And, you know, they lived upstate. So they were kind of like more in nature, but just like getting dirty and, you know, like, like boyhood, the, the agony of boyhood and the ecstasy of boyhood. And it really, I think helped me to think about things in my own story in a way where it was like, he didn't linger on the trauma. He talked about it and he talked about it in a way that was very emotionally resonant. You know, he's a very sensitive kid and he was gay. You don't learn he's gay until the end of the book. So it's not really like a gay book, but it's like it is a gay book because you kind of like understand his kind of like otherness. You know, he's like with his brothers who are these really tough guys, but there's like a part of him that doesn't belong there. And I think that's very relatable, gay or not, for a lot of people who are just like artists 
are in a certain social scene or whatever. And you're like, this is not, this doesn't work. And that was the focus. It was about this person becoming a person and not kind of like, oh, these horrible things happened to me. I, I love that book. It does beautiful. All right. Did I tell you to read heavy, the memoir Heavy? Yeah, you did. You told me to read it and I went and read it. I loved it. I had, a, I honestly had issues with it. We could talk a lot about Heavy, but I really liked it. I did. I, I was, I was, I was moved by it. I, I was particularly moved because, you know, it, t- it obviously talks a lot about food and talks about him being big. And it's, you know, it's like, um, there's so many aspects of, addiction that get explored in memoirs when we do talk about eating disorders we usually think about women um and i really liked his ability to talk about this like consumption the idea that like consumption was the illness consumption was the addiction and even though i don't think you know i i I, even the language of like hearing like a man talk about his body i don't think that i've ever read or like heard yeah I agree. I thought that was masterful. And like the idea of looking, you know, we, we hear so much again, it's, it's like a, it's kind of gendered. We think about people hating their bodies and we think about, you know, women who are, you know, kind of confronted by all these images in mass culture about what a body should look like. And it's like, Oh yeah, men experience that men, men hate their bodies too. <laughs> you know, we're just, we're just repressed. <laughs> so we don't talk about it, but I, I, that's all the more reason for, like to kind of celebrate what he did in that book. I loved Heavy. That's another good example. Well, I have loved talking to you. We could talk all night. Uh, thank you for doing this. Again, you know, you inviting me on Margin Call is sort of what inspired me to want to do something like this. So thank you. I always end these interviews with the same question, and I'm sort of excited to hear your answer since we've talked about writing and like this space in your life where you're looking for next step. What is in your rear view, Russell? Good God. You know, I've been thinking about this metaphor a lot. I knew that it would be introduced. I think initially when I, when I, or perhaps, you know, there was a time when I would think about a rear view and be like, oh yeah, the only, I got lots in my rear view. It's burnt bridges. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's what's in my rear view. And I was like, no, that's the wrong, that's not the interpretation we're talking about here. But that I think illustrates what I'm, what's actually in my rear view, if that makes sense. What I'm saying is I used to have a worldview where I was like, burn bridges. I'm done with that. You know what I mean? That's how to move on, you know? Mm -hmm. And what now I'm in a place where what I'm actually done with is like being chaotic and self-destructive and hurtful. And, um, and that like that level of kind of like personal chaos, some of, some of it is just like maturity and like, Oh, if you want to like stay alive, you can't maintain that level of, of chaos, but also just like, honestly, like without being overly sentimental, you know, like I got into a serious relationship 10 years ago and really wanted to honor that. And a lot of my personal changes came out of like, well, what does it mean to be a good partner? And it means you don't lie to your person. You know, it means you don't cheat on your person. And it means you don't betray your person and, and, those things are very hard. They were hard for me because I identified as a person who was like, oh, get it. I'm like an asshole, you know? And uh, as, as my brother once said, you know, I used to tell my brother stories like of my crazy exploits. And my brother is very, very, very much, much stabler than I. You know, he kind of went through life in a very deliberate way, which was good for him and worked for him. But he always felt like he had to be this big brother that was concerned about me. So once I was telling him this crazy story about like, oh, yeah, I I got 86 from LaGuardia. You know, I showed up and was wasted and trying to 
get at this girl and then the cops came and they kicked me out or look, you know, I thought it was like a funny story to be 86 from LaGuardia. Cause that's the kind of mythology I was trying to perpetuate about myself. And my brother was like driving the car and he's like, you know, your whole life I've been kind of explaining you to other people, you know, where they're like, Hey, what's going on with Russell, man? He's really off the hook. What are we going to do? You know? And I used to say, that's just Russell, man. You know, he's just young and crazy. And he said, but pretty soon you're not going to be that young and you're just going to be crazy. It's some good, some good big brother insights. And it helped. It helped. Yeah. That stings. That yeah. stings. In the, and only the way it, in an older the right brother way, where it was like kind of just, you know, somebody else might say it like, you know, it's not cute anymore. You know, like that's real. It's not cute to just hurt people. And, and, and it honestly created a lot of anguish for myself. And I think what's in my rear view now is one kind of being defined by trauma of one kind or another, you know, where I really held on to a lot of things from my childhood. And um, I think I've done a lot of work on myself. My mom has done a lot of work on myself. And like that crazy dynamic is no longer the thing that, in, that motivates me or like gives me an excuse to be self-destructive. You know, it's just a thing that exists, you know, that is confusing and, and continues to evolve and as we improve our relationship my mother and i like i don't need to rely on that kind of you know villain or quote-unquote villain origin story and i think also like uh i am no i'm less interested in image crafting you know like for a long time i felt like Hmm. people expect me to be like crazy and off the hook you know what i mean that's who i am so i gotta be who i am you know but at a certain point like when do you become a parody of yourself and when are you like acting acting a certain way because not because it's you but because people are like oh yeah russell's crazy dude it's the expectation you know you're like just like a court jester right and i don't feel that pressure which is always only pressure i ever put on myself uh so i don't feel defined by that and i don't feel defined by this childhood trauma and i don't feel defined by the fact that i was locked up when i was a kid which was a big part of my identity for a long time so all that stuff that was important and is important i don't feel like that has to really shape who i'm becoming now and it's very very liberating to finally be confronted with the question of like well okay so what replaces that who or what do you care about what is important to you what's what's the kind of person you want to be you know thank you i love that i love to see it thank you for thank doing you, this Travis. thanks so much for having me it's a it's a great honor and i'm glad that you and i have a relationship where we are continuing to inspire each other you told me don't be an idiot and go to law school <laughs> be a writer uh and then you came on margin call and you want to be a podcast you know so now here you are now you're a podcast host <laughs> thanks so much travis thank you and thank all of you out there for listening to this episode of Objects in This Review. I am Travis Montez, reminding you that the only reason to take a look back is to see how far you've come. See you next time. <laughs>